All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, what a blessed time in worship. And I just have a couple of announcements to go over. Next Saturday, Salt and Light, uh, Young Adults at 630. And then next Sunday will be Communion, be first Sunday of the month. This is a short month. And then um, we'll also have a board meeting. And then, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, obviously, you guys have heard of Passion Week coming up April 3rd through 7th. And we'll have a flyer up. Evan's getting a whole page uh, going for all of that. So you can look up all the details. And as we get closer, I'll give more information as to what we're going to do. This morning, just with that worship, I feel like this is going to be a tearjerker day. <laughs> I don't like those days. I was joking with a few people last week about them crying during worship, and here I am tearing up during this worship. So there you go. That's what I get. But I wanna—I don't know if any of you or what you might be going through, but personally, I've entered into this season of, of wilderness or deep waters, deep valleys, and not understanding certain things that the Lord is doing. Uh, and you might be in that season of your life. Uh, maybe if you're not, you're probably getting ready to go into one um, or you're coming out of one, but we know how the Lord works. And this um, devotion really touched me. And it's based off of Isaiah 43, 2. And I believe he's using the NLT version. And it says this, the Lord says, when you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. And when you walk through the fire of oppression, the flames will not consume you. And this is called from the heart of God, as if God was speaking. I never promised that you wouldn't go through deep waters, rivers of difficulty, or fires of oppression. I have promised, however, that I will be with you and bring you through. You need to understand the difference. When you encounter trials, even painful or difficult ones, don't think that I've let you down. I'm with you even in the midst of them. Many people think I've broken my promises when they encounter unexpected or traumatic crisis. Then they let those disappointments color everything I say to them in the future. They don't trust my words because after all, I seem to have let them down last time. But I never let anyone down who trusts me. Yes, you experienced pain. No, it didn't overcome you. You made it through because of me. Just like the songs we were singing. Many people believe that my voice will make their lives easier. It does make your life stronger and deeper, but it will rarely make things simpler for you. You will be led into battles and intense situations that need my touch. You will always be given the best instructions, but seldom the easiest ones. I will lead you into the places of greatest need in this world because you heard and responded to me, qualifying yourself to be my instrument in those places. I speak strength and encouragement into your heart because you will need them. Don't lower your expectations for what you have, what you might hear from me. Raise them higher. You will go on great but challenging adventures, and I will be with you in all of them. Sometimes the things that we go through seem insurmountable, seem so huge. Yet there's always somebody going through something more. Always. Usually always we will experience that. And so... Sometimes the things that we're going through feel like they're the biggest things ever, and that's okay. Um, but, man, I'm telling you, the things that 
those deep waters and troubles and things like that, as you guys have experienced, man, make you cry out to the Lord even more and get with him even more. So I'm grateful for these times, just as we learned from the Apostle Paul on what to do during times of trials and tribulations that we've been reading Romans. And he says how they bring us closer to the Lord. So we're in Romans chapter 5. I just wanted to read that to you. Hopefully that encourages you. And we're in Romans chapter 5, going through verses 12 through 21. We're going to continue on because last week we just did verse 12. And now we're going to do verses 12 through 17. We'll probably make it through verse 17. And then after that next week, we'll get through verse 21. And then we'll start into chapter 6. So we're almost at the halfway point. Uh, of the book of Romans after, what, a year? So that's awesome. I love it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence and we're so grateful to have this place. We're so grateful for this time, this morning, Lord, to come and to worship you. And I'm so grateful for these people, Lord, who have come out to worship you in song, Lord, together and now worship you in your word, Father. And we pray, Father, for all those who are not here, who are sick, Father, who are hurting, whatever they might be going through, Lord, we lift them up to you. We ask that you would touch their uh, hearts and minds and touch them physically. And Lord, especially in this weather, keep us safe from any sicknesses, Lord, from any harm, Father, and go before us and lead us. And we pray now, Lord, that you would open up our ears to hear, open up our eyes to see, and open up our hearts to receive what you have to say to us today. Holy Spirit, we invite you to enlighten our minds and our hearts to your precious word. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. That's what we're going through. We've been talking about the universal impacts of Adam and Jesus. This will be our second part. To this series. Now, the Apostle Paul, we read in verse 12, let's read that together real quick in chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. So he's been, we entered into an area with Paul in his letter to the Romans about death and life, about the contrast between Adam and Jesus, the disparities between the two the universal lasting impacts of their lives upon mankind for all ages. And these contrasts begin here, and they take us all the way through chapter 6. So through chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, we see the death in Adam and life in Christ. Then as we enter into chapter 6, it shows us how in Christ we are dead to sin, and then we are alive to God. And also in chapter 6, we see that we are slaves, or we were slaves to sin, and now we're slaves to God and Christ. But back to chapter 5 now, the disparities between Adam and Jesus is going to be our focus right now in these verses. So in verse 12, we're told that death entered through Adam, transmitted to everyone, because Adam is what? He's the federal head of humanity of all humanity, and so we are genetically in him, which is what we discussed last week. And when he sinned, he entered all of us into universal sin, which brought separation 
from God, and that's not what the plan was. So he broke the only commandment of God, and sin was already here with Satan, but it entered into the world through Adam. And what was the lasting impact? What was the result of this? It's death. Immediately it was spiritual death, and then eventually it was physical death. But God made a way for the spiritual death in Jesus Christ. Remember, God said, you sin and what? You die. You sin, you die. The proof that we're all in Adam is that everyone dies. And that proof is found all the way through the Bible, even through Genesis chapter 5, as we read those several scriptures through that lineage, through the lineage of Adam, everybody died. Now, John, in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 18, it tells us this. He who believes in him, in Christ, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Then he repeats this in John 3.36. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned what? Already. You're already condemned, but there's a way out. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And what John is saying is that if you do not have Christ, you're condemned already. You're condemned already because you're born in this sin. Because you were born into it and its lasting effect is death. Without Christ, you're left in your natural state. And what was that? Rebellion against a holy God. And who entered us into that rebellion? Adam. Without Christ, we will be thrown into a place where it was only made for Satan and his fallen angels. We'll be thrown into the lake of fire a place that was never designed for any human being. And so to go there when it's not designed for you, when there's a way of escape, is insanity. Because there is a way of escape. And what tells us that there, that was only designed for them? Matthew 25, 41. You can read that on your own. Now, death. Death reigning. See, in Job, the Bible calls death, in man's view, the king of terrors. It's called the king of terrors. I like what John MacArthur wrote. He wrote this, No truth is more self-evident than the inevitability of death. The earth is pockmarked with graves, and the most incontestable testimony of history is that all men, whatever their wealth, status, or accomplishments, are subject to death. Since creation, every person but two, Enoch and Elijah, have died. And were it not for Christ's rapture of his church, all men would continue to die, end quote. Now, you might quickly think of Enoch and Elijah and wonder, well, they didn't die. So what do you mean everybody dies? Well, as an aside, and this is something for another time, but real briefly, if they are the two witnesses in Revelation that is spoken of in chapter 11 of Revelation, then they will die by the hands of the beast. That's what the Bible tells us is described to us there. We'll discuss that another, another time. But the overarching truth is that death is inevitable and it comes to everyone. It comes to all of us. The 18th century poet Thomas Gray wrote the following. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, 
All that wealth ere grave awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. The paths of glory lead to the grave. Everybody dies. Walter Frederick Adney, a 20th century theologian and biblical scholar, gave some of his own reasons why death is known as the king of terrors. And he gave seven. I want to read those to you. The first one says this, It is opposed to the natural love of life, all that a man hath when he give for his life. Therefore death appears as his enemy. Every living creature shuns it. The fear of it makes a tragedy of the chase. He writes uh, for the second time, It is irresistible, a veritable monarch. We may maintain a state of siege for a time, but we know we must all capitulate at last. When death storms the citadel in real earnest, no power can keep it out. These are the reasons it's a terror. Number three, he writes, its territory, listen, is unknown. The mystery of death adds to its terrors. If we saw more, we might fear less. We launch our vessel on a dark sea, not knowing what surges beat on the further shore. Number four, he writes, it comes in pain. We often say that the worst is over with the poor sufferer before the end has come. The bitterness of death has passed before death itself has been reached. Still, there is suffering at the end of most lives, and we instinctively shrink from this. We cannot bring ourselves to face the thought of the death struggle. We want to avoid any pain. We don't want it. Number five, he writes, It takes us from all the light and joy of the earth. The natural love of life is confirmed by experience. To die is to lie in cold obstruction. All the sunshine and flowers of this fair world are gone. All the sweetness of companionship with love on earth. The soul is severed from its earthly delights. Very positive. Number six, he writes, it comes to each singly. Each soul must venture alone into the dread unknown. Man, that's a terror. And number seven, it ushers us into future judgment. After death, the judgment. The sinner who dares not give an account of himself before God dreads to hear the summons from the messenger of the unseen. The sting of death is sin. Those are his seven reasons why death is a terror. And it certainly is without Christ. You see, the reality of death, it comes to everyone without interruption and without exception. The Apostle Paul has proved all of that through Adam, and sin entered and death ruled. And although he is making this case, it's interesting here that that is not his main point here. It's not. Paul is now building up to disparities or these contrasts and lasting impacts that one man can bring to all mankind. And what is his point? What's the point he's leading up to? That if all men were not in a fallen state with the first Adam, then all men could not be saved by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. This is what he's leading up to. So now Paul brings in these disparities, these contrasts of the lives of both the first and second Adam in an effort to show their lasting universal impacts on all mankind. Because if death is a universal impact, and it's inevitable, and spiritual death is inevitable without Christ, with Christ, and that's forever, with Christ, once you have it, it's forever as well.
This is his point. This is what he's getting to. Verse 13, it says, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now stop there. So the Apostle Paul, he's telling us sin was in the world. Sin was already in the world prior to labels being placed on sins, plural. Sin was already in the world. All the law did was point out sin that was already present. It just put a label on them. So Paul here is going to make that clear, demonstrate how we know sin was in the world during the interval between Adam and Moses. So reading these verses, it's kind of like winding a hose. Have you ever wound a hose up and you're thinking it's going good and you got to twist it and twist it? And then you look back and the tail of it is just wrapping itself and wrapping itself and you got to unwind it. That's what these verses seem like to me here. We begin to think that the Apostle Paul is simply twisting and twisting around, coming back to the same subjects and continuing to repeat himself. And in a way, he does repeat uh, some truths here. But every time he repeats a truth, he brings along with it a trailer of new examples and affirmations. And this is what he's doing here. The Apostle Paul, he's extremely precise in his wording and intentions. He always has an intention. He's always going somewhere with his points. The Apostle Paul has been said to have an eloquent fullness. In other words, whenever he brings in a subject already discussed, he brings another nuance with it. He brings more color with it. He paints the picture a different way. Remember with me that the Apostle Paul, he has a way to read his audience. He knows them. And as he's writing this, he's been arguing with this invisible bystander in a crowd, remember. So here he's thinking of somebody very, very sharp, a very deep and methodical thinker. Like in my industry as a financial advisor, we sometimes deal with engineers and attorneys, and they're very left-brain thinkers. They're very methodical. They want to know, uh, when many of us just want to know the end results, these people want to know the inner workings of how those results were obtained. And so your conversations are longer. They're reading through all the documentation, asking all the questions, which is fine and great. But this is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with now. He's arguing with every person. So this is who he's addressing here in these verses 13 and 14. So the question that that bystander might be asking could be something like this. If there was no written law, then how could there be sin? If there's no written law, how could there be sin? It's again because we are sinners through our earthly father, Adam, and the proof that there was sin between Adam and Moses because there was still death. That's the proof. There was still death. Because from Adam to Moses, death did not take a holiday, did it? It didn't take a break. People still died. If things were progressing, then people would live forever. But that's not what's happening. What this is not saying here, it's not saying that sin is not held accountable if there is no law. Now, this is where a lot of people get hung up in these verses right here because they just stick on that point. 
And it's not even the major factor in the whole uh, uh, chapter. Adam's transgression against God commands, uh, commanded, ushered in universal sin and death, right? His, his, his sin against God's command, that's what it ushered in, that universal sin. All the Ten Commandments did, all they did was label transgression. They exposed sin. So put it this way. When someone tells you not to do something, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to do it. Sin is revealed. That's what happens. You want to do the very thing you were told not to do. And what is that called? That's called transgression. The law here is simply complementary. It's not even the major factor. It's not the major point in these verses. The major factor is this. The major factor are the impacts of Adam and Christ. The impacts that they had on all mankind. Now between the intervening, in, intervening period of Adam and Moses, there was still sin. How do we know? Because with the exception of Enoch, who died? Everybody died. And remember, not everybody died spiritually. We're simply talking about dying physically as a proof of sin in the world because there's a way not to die spiritually, and that's to accept Christ. Well, how did those Old Testament saints accept Christ when Christ hadn't died yet? Haven't we gone through that when we were looking at Abraham? Because we know way back in Genesis, the cross was already foretold. And we know that many Old Testament saints accepted Christ by the light that they were given to see him. We've been through these verses. The point here is that all humanity is born in sin and held accountable for it. So we know we are all connected to Adam. How? We're all connected to Adam in sin. Well, how do we know this? Because we all die physically. Those who died prior to the law given were not dying for their transgressions necessarily. They were dying because of sin, singular sin, the universal sin. And that's why we have to deal with universal sin. Because the moment we begin to go to somebody and tell them what they're doing wrong in life, well, what is that going to do for them? We're just on our high horse. That's all they view it as. We have to come to them with the universal sin that we're all sinners and that we need a Savior. That's why repentance is necessary. That's why we need to get them to see Jesus Christ. Not pointing out all their faults because we have the same faults pointing out that we were in rebellion with God naturally through Adam. And this is how we do it right here. This is what's being pointed out, the universal sin. Sins, plural, is just the result of what? Sin, singular. You sin because you're a sinner. You don't become a sinner because you sin. And that's a very critical concept to understand because if I realize I'm a sinner then I'll realize I need a Savior. So sin was in the world already, entered through Adam. The proof of it during the time between Adam and Moses is what? Is death. And at verse 14, we're told that Adam is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. Interesting, don't you think? Because then we're going to read and it's going to start talking about these gifts. What gift did Adam give us? Really, think about it. What was that gift? I mean, what kind of gift is that? He's a type of Christ in reverse. 
This is what the Apostle Paul is doing. Now, we'll look at the disparity in types, and we'll look at three of them. The first one is this, the disparity of consequences. Let's look at verse 15. It tells us this, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. First, we have the disparity of consequences. As the result of the actions of two men being compared, both lives of the first and second Adam gave us a gift. But the one gift is not like the other gift. There's a contrast being made, and there's this huge gap between the two universal lasting effects. So we're told that Adam gave us a gift. Now, what kind of gift did Adam really give us? The kind of gift that makes us wonder if there was any thought of us at all. I mean, do you remember maybe at a birthday party or at your birthday party or Christmas and somebody gives you a gift, a family member, a friend, you open it and then you look at it and you wonder, do they even know me? I mean, what kind of gift is Adam giving us? The gift that Adam gave to all mankind is death. Christ's gift, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. It gives life eternally. One gave death eternally. Jesus gives life eternally. That is the gift of grace through Jesus Christ when we receive him as Lord and Savior. The disparity of results that the Apostle Paul points out to us, listen, they're astounding. Think with me for a moment. What was the de devil's temptation to Adam and Eve? He told them what? That you're going to become like gods. You're going to be like God. In other words, Satan's accusation against God is that he's lying to you. Why? Because he doesn't want you to be like him. And as soon as you do that, you're going to be just like him. What? How tempting that is, right? We, he wanted to be like God. Now, how do we know that what Satan said was a lie? How do we know this? We have to ask yourself a question. Did Adam get the results he wanted? Did he get the results he wanted? Not at all. Adam's act could not yield his desired outcome, could it? It did not. It did not produce what he wanted. He did not become like God. In fact, he became sinful man now subject to death. Now Christ's act, think about this, yielded the desired result, didn't it? And not only that, in an abounding way to many. To many, listen, not all. To many. Why? Because not all will believe. Not all will receive. Christ died for all, but not all will receive him as Lord and Savior. Now here's the disparity, the difference or the contrast in results. Adam wanted to be like God, and what resulted was sin and death for all mankind. How long? Forever. Forever. But the results of Jesus Christ yielded exactly what was promised. Exactly what he promised. Salvation over death and sin and hell for those who receive him. And that's the grace of the one man, Jesus, our Savior. Now, in verse 15, there's a couple of words here that we have to key 
in on that we need to point out. What are those? Well, Paul says, much more, much more. It's because we're given much more by Christ. Listen, Jesus doesn't just reverse Adam's impacts on our lives, does he? He doesn't just reverse it. If he just reversed Adam's impacts, all he would have done was simply forgive us of our sins. But what else does he do? It's abounding. Listen, he showers life upon us while we're still here in this world. He tells us we're heirs. We have a new entirely, uh, entirely new life. We have peace that surpasses all understanding. We are heirs of the kingdom. We're given an entirely, entirely new spirit. Trials, temptations, testings, they increase our faith. They strengthen our love for him. They draw us to him. Care for others becomes a primary fo focus as we learn to deny self. We know where we're headed. We know where we're going in, in eternity. And we're hopeful in that promise. And the sins that used to grip our lives are suddenly dissipating and they have no more control over us. So you may say, well, sometimes there's this sin in my life that I just can't let go of. It seems to just grasp so tightly. And as you continue to pray, have you noticed that it seems to dissipate little by little by little? And eventually one day you look back and you think, oh my gosh, I haven't done that sin in a long time. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. We have power over all of these things. So the universal impacts, the disparity of the results between the two are very, very different. There's a huge gap. So if one man's sin can condemn all man, all mankind for all time, what does that tell you about God's hatred for sin? It was just one sin. And he said, you die. Just one. This leads us into the next thought. See, that was the disparity of the consequences, the universal impacts of each man, the one bringing death and the one bringing life eternal. Now we look at the disparity of measure, the disparity of measure, verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So listen, the amount of one sin brought condemnation for how many people? For everyone. That is a heavy measure. That's what Adam did. Yet yeah, listen to this. The accumulated sins of the world from all men for all time is even heavier, don't you think? Absolutely. All of that far outweighs the one condemning sin. And Adam was not able to bear that load of even the one. But look what Christ did. He took on his shoulders everything, and he conquered it all. All of the accumulated, that's what it's saying here in this verse. For if, look, listen, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. See, Christ's gift is completely different than Adam's gift. You see what he's doing here? Adam's gift caused all mankind eternal condemnation and death. Christ's gift, if accepted, causes life to be covered by the grace of God. 
Now follow this. One man's sin caused death both spiritually and physically. One transgression against one command of God caused all of this through Adam. That tells you what God thinks about sin, doesn't it? He hates sin. He is a holy God. Listen, he didn't wait around and tell Adam, hey, you know what? Rack up a few. Rack up 10, 12, and then maybe I'll deal with it. No, he said one, and you're done. That's it. He dealt with it immediately after one sin. Does that not give you an idea of what he dealt with by placing Christ on the cross? All of the accumulated sins. Think about all of those accumulated sins. The compounding sin that Jesus had to deal with. Adam did not pile up a ton of sin and then God dealt with it. It was just one. But Jesus had to deal with the piles and piles, insurmountable sins accumulated. Think about your sins for a moment. Sins you committed even this morning. Sins we committed yesterday, last night. Pile them up. Pile them up across all your life. Then think about all of us here in the sanctuary, all of our sins accumulated. Now aren't you grateful this place isn't filled up? All of those sins accumulated. Then everyone in the entire world. Listen, that's what Jesus died for. All of that. Adam committed one and death entered. Jesus dealt with them all and eternal life entered. Amazing. In that, Jesus' death far outweighs what Adam did. These are monumental truths. The Apostle Paul is pointing out. You want to know how it's done? You want to know the inner workings? The Apostle Paul is saying, hey, engineer, hey, attorney, this is how. Let me dive deep into it with you. Man, we're getting some depth here. Now, as a Christian, you may have come in today with the full weight of all these accumulated sins that you're thinking about. Maybe you feel guilty for all of this stuff, thinking that the wages of all of them is placing us in eternity, placing you in eternity in hell forever just because that's the way you feel because of guilt. But here, aren't we being reminded that Christ died for all of them forever? And his gift is superior? That's the peace that we should have. And now in Christ, we do not have the sweat of the heat of hell in front of us, do we? No, what we do have is that cool breeze of the Holy Spirit, a tailwind at our backs propelling us forward into eternity in heaven. That's what we have. It's amazing. So one man, Adam, he sinned once and ushered in judgment. And one man, Christ, took on all the accumulated sins of everyone and died once, ushering in the opportunity of salvation when we believe in him. So the disparity of consequences, the disparity of measure, because the measurements are incomparable of the two. They're vast. There's a huge gap. And now the disparity of inevitabilities. What's that? The inevitable results of all of this. Verse 17. For if by the one man's offense... Death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. 
The universal impact of each man's act, Adam and Christ, both brought a fixed result. Adam gives us a reign of death. Terror. It's terror. Christ gives us a reign of life that's full of grace and full of peace. You see, the certain and fixed result of Adam is what? Death. This is what he's pointing out. That's the fixed reality. The certain and fixed result of Jesus Christ is what? Life. And how long? Eternity. Eternal. That's salvation. That's the salvation we have. Adam's act and the fixed inevitable result, listen, it can be overthrown because we know that Jesus overthrew it. It can be overturned. It can be overruled. You could be acquitted. In other words, someone else could come along and overthrow it and deal with it. And that was God himself coming down off of his throne in Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Christ can come along and take away the sting of death and deal with its eternal impact. And he said he would do it. Remember back in Hosea 13, 14, it says he's talking to his people. But are we his people grafted in? This is for us too. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. That's the God of the Old Testament. The love that he has. But listen, the gift, the act of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, cannot be overthrown. This is a precursor to chapter 8. You see, the seal of the Holy Spirit, the gift of life that we have in Jesus Christ, can never be taken away once we have it. It cannot be penetrated. It cannot be overturned. We are acquitted. God has the power over death and over hell. And when he forgives us, when he saves us and fuses his spirit and soul to ours, what can take that away? Nothing can take that away. This is, again, a precursor to chapter 8 where Paul tells us that nothing can separate us from what we have been given. And he goes through a list of things. In other words, what he's saying there is nothing. He goes through all the lists and he's saying nothing can separate us from the love of God once we have that in our lives. So do you see the disparity in the types of these two men? Huge, vast gaps between the two works. If Adam's one sin can bring death to the entire human race, Christ's death for all mankind's sins for all times, can bring eternal life for all who believe. Just as it was not fair that I am swept into sin with Adam when I was not there, in that same light, it is not fair that I deserve this great salvation when I did not have to die on the cross for it. Nevertheless, Christ has given to me the opportunity to have this free gift. This is his point. When I accept him into my heart as Lord and Savior, he tells me what? I am there with him already. And I was there with him when he died. Galatians 2.20 tells us this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I was not there with Jesus, yet he accounts that I was. He tells me I've been crucified with him and that just as he has risen with new life, that I have the same thing. 
I'm also an heir. I'm already there. You're already there. Isn't that a great thought? We're here, yes, but we're there. I don't understand that either. But that's the gift. We already have the so-called gift of Adam because we were born into it. We will all die, but we won't all die spiritually. And God tells us how much He hates sin. Just after one, just after one sin, man was punished, how long? For all time. The only thing stronger, and I love this, the only thing stronger than God's hatred of sin, and think about what you think about the God of the Old Testament. You think he's just the just, not the justifier. We think he's the God who smites and kills, who's angry at everybody. But that's not the God of the Old Testament, and it's not the God of the New Testament. The only thing stronger than God's hatred of sin is what? His love for the sinner. That's the only thing stronger than his hatred for sin. So much so that he was was and is willing to overlook it all through the blood of Jesus Christ, to make a way. Isn't that the measure of the love of God? Isn't that the measure of the love that God has for me and for you? That's the measure of it. To be utterly holy, just, and righteous, yet to overlook it all and spare us through Jesus Christ, through that blood. Man, how amazing. Listen to this. To come to the realization that we are born in Adam, in sin that brings judgment, separation from God, and eternal death, and then to understand that God's gift of His Son dying on the cross to wash away those sins for all time. We come to these realizations, yet to deny inviting Him into your heart as Lord and Savior, well, that's pure foolishness and insanity. Why would you ever want that? It shows that you do not completely understand sin or salvation. That's what it shows us. It shows we do not understand how much He hates sin, yet how much He loves us. And that's what we need to bring people to the understanding of when we are in Christ. That's what we need to point out. The Apostle Paul does such an amazing job of laying out for us what salvation truly is, the disparities between the two, Adam and Christ, and what they bring once we accept them. We are in one now, and when we accept Christ, it's been totally reversed. Totally and completely reversed. Who wouldn't want that in their lives? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given to us, Lord. Thank you for your word, Father. It's so powerful. Thank you for these lasting impacts of those of us who have received you, Jesus, into our lives. That we have life eternal. We will die physically one day. We understand this. That's inevitable. But Lord, eternity with you once we receive you in heaven, Lord, is eternal. That's inevitable as well. Lord, those who do not have you, it's our desire that they would, Lord, see you clearly, Jesus. Not that they would see that they have to give up fun in the world, Lord. I think that's what many people think. 
That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about universal sin. All those other things you will clean up in your due time. But we pray for those who do not truly know you, that they would come to know you, Lord. And if they haven't accepted you, remind them, tell them that they could just do it right now. Lord, speak to their spirit. Call them, draw them in your love. And may they confess that they are sinners. May they repent. And may they just invite you to be their Lord and Savior. We pray that right now, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for us as believers right now, for reminding us of the blessed gifts that we have in you and that nothing can take it away from us. What a glorious and blessed salvation we have. And thank you for affirming it and reinforcing it. And Lord, those of us going through pain, suffering, seasons of doubt, seasons in the wilderness, Lord, even seasons of joy, Father, may you be there with us in all of it. We thank and we praise you now, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.